HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Yes, it's that time again. It's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And guess what? Today I'm interviewing me, your host, Katie Kiefer. <laughs> no, it's like, I had a crazy week, people. I really, really did. Like, this is the first time I think in many moons where I haven't uh, had guests lined up way, way ahead of time. And I do have them for the next month or so, and I'll be telling you about those in a few minutes. But... Um, I just thought I'd kind of uh, review some of the topics that are my favorites um, and that I've really been covering. I realized as I was looking back through the archive and listening to some old shows, uh, looking for um, sort of inspiration, as it were, that uh, that there are some things that I've been covering since long before the mainstream media was on them. Things like fracking and uh, HIMP, which is a new inspection model um, that we've talked about many times on this show with not only Amanda Hitt from the Government Accountability Project, but also with um, the uh, Government Accountability Organization, uh, excuse me, office, um, you know, and numerous other sort of uh, <clears throat> stakeholders, shall we say, <clears throat> including people from um, the meat industry. So something I think about a lot and read about a lot is hemp, which is, um, you know, part of the hazardous hazard analysis and critical control point. Um, it's kind of a continuation of that where they take, <clears throat> in case you haven't listened to my many shows on this, they take, they are taking USDA inspectors off the line of um, meat inspection, primarily in poultry and pork. And putting them at the end of the line and basically allowing uh, the fox in the hen house in the form of, um, you know, meat packers uh, policing themselves. And I think we can <clears throat> pretty much assume that that's maybe not going to be the very best model to go forward with. Um, but that's in the works now. It's rolling out in the pork industry and uh, most notably in uh, Hormel plants, which were chosen to be the primary um sort of showcases for the hemp project. And then the other thing I talk about a lot is animal uh, is uh, animal livestock and antibiotic use in animal livestock. Again, a story that I've been 
all over for, you know, I mean, I've been doing this for six years now. I started this, doing this show with Patrick Martin six years ago this month, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe the beginning of April. So um, I've learned an awful lot since then because I have the sort of the mind of a grasshopper, meaning that I jump from things to thing, a little bit of an ADD problem maybe, except that I've never thought of it that way. It's just I'm endlessly curious, and I love going down those rabbit holes um, to look things up. So today, for instance, um, I was reviewing a couple of articles that I had noted earlier in the week, one of which was on the Huffington Post and another was on a trade blog, and it was talking about how rather than seeing antibiotic use in animal agriculture decrease, uh, we're actually seeing it increase. Um, And that's not so much because American producers are not some of them doing what they're supposed to do, but because so many other people in the world want to eat meat. So, um, you know, the Chinese have now become giant uh, producers of pork, for example. That's their favorite meat. They bought Smithfield last about two years ago. Um, Brazil is a giant producer of beef and chicken, I think. And they all still use a lot of um, antibiotics, and they don't necessarily limit them to ones that have no impact on human medicine, which is what... The FDA is trying to um, influence in this country. That's that's not really happening so much over there. I'd actually love it if somebody wanted to send me around the world to do a comparison of meat production systems in all of the major meat-producing countries. So anybody out there who has access to grant money or just large funds and wants to do this with me, um, you know, feel free to contact me after the show. Um, and then the other thing that I'm noticing is a big trend right now in um, – in the news and, and in the food world, and it's about time too, is labor issues. And part of that is because of um, the excellent uh, documentary that came out uh, just a few months ago uh, called Food Chains, which was primarily about the Coalition for Immokalee Workers. And these are tomato pickers in Florida. Um, and their struggle has been epic and decades long. Um, it really has taken a very long time for them to get Uh, a fair price for what they pick. And it's taken um, a huge amount of um, sort of social, I wasn't really, I think until, I mean, Barry Estabrook could correct me, but I would say that it has been social media that has helped them along more than almost anything else, because it was social media that let consumers know that they were not being paid fairly and that um, large, uh, grocery chains needed to step up to the plate and give them literally a penny a pound more for their fruit. So, um, And this, I think, is going to be repeated all across the country in virtually every sector. And then there's, um, you know, Ted Genoways has been on this show many times, actually, and he published his great book, The Chain, last spring about the pork industry. And that that book was also very much about labor relations and the impact of our lack of immigration policy. And that, of course, extends to farm workers because many of the people who work uh, in our sort of basic food service jobs are undocumented workers and therefore do not get the protections of unions or get the protections of just basic fair labor practices because essentially they can be intimidated or just flat out deported if they're reported to the INS, if they complain they get reported, the INS comes and gets them and sends them back to wherever they came from. So um, those labor issues, I think, are going to become more and more of a story. And of course, everybody has been following 
the strikes and walkouts in fast food chains who are lobbying heavily for with consumer help for uh, higher wages. Um, you know, let's all remember that when we shop at some place like McDonald's or Burger King and their people are not making more than the minimum wage, we are essentially subsidizing the profits of those companies because those people who are making minimum wage then have to apply for food stamps, SNAP benefits, or Medicare, excuse me, Medicaid. Um, you know, so it's nothing is for free. If it seems too good to be true, that's pretty generally the fact. It is too good to be true. So mm. there's something I've been thinking about a lot. It's the whole labor issues, um, those trends around what's becoming more important to consumers. It's kind of interesting to me because... I did food publicity, or not food publicity, but book publicity for about 10 years, and one of my first clients was Anthony Bourdain, and Anthony Bourdain was arguably sort of the first real star chef. He kind of made that happen in the public consciousness, and part of the reason that happened is because I sent him on a 46-city tour (laughs) where he pressed the flesh of every cook, waitress, and, and, uh, you know, busboy in the country, and... um, Suddenly being a chef was wicked cool. So, um, you know, those, that, that has morphed into how now we care more about what we eat and how we get our food. And that has naturally progressed into who is picking our food, who is making our food, who is collecting our food. And then I'm hoping that the next piece of the puzzle will be how do we distribute food? Because right now... Um, you know, uh, two of the biggest broadline distributors in the country, Cisco and U.S. Foods, are in talks with the um, Federal Trade Commission about merging. And the Trade Commission is trying to prevent that merger, and the um, two companies are uh, lobbying heavily to make that merger go forward. And um, and that means all kinds of things, probably more complicated things than I can possibly explain or even understand. But basically, when you only have one guy doing something or one company, you know, sort of dominating the market, it's it's what we call a monopoly. And when you have a monopoly, it means they can fix prices. <laughs> and, you know, like that becomes a problem, right? We don't really want that. Um, in fact, what we do want is to decentralize food distribution and create, uh, you know, larger series of food hubs in various regions um, so that uh, we can start breaking down those monopolies and get more uh, products from uh, smaller producers onto the market and into the store shelves. And um, we're a long way from that. But people are starting to think about that. And um, I see that as one of the next big trains trends. First, it'll be the food workers, labor issues that will get resolution or at least get scrutiny. And then I'm hoping distribution systems will follow suit. And I'm also hoping that there'll be some venture capital investment in uh, food hubs and um, production and aggregation facilities so that farmers don't have to truck their stuff into farmers markets and lose all that time. Because that's one of the things that raises the price. I mean, they have to be compensated for driving from upstate New York, you know, leaving home at three in the morning and getting down to the Union Square market at eight 
um, and spending the day selling and then ten, ten, another five hours to go home, you know, that stuff is added into the cost of your um, produce. And so when people complain about why is the farmer's market price is so high, that's often one of the major components is the transportation issue. Um, the gas is expensive, though less so than it was, and the farmer's time is really pretty much invaluable. So, Or at least they have to pay somebody to do that stuff, right? I mean, nothing is for free, people. Um, so then the next thing that... Um, I was thinking about as I was preparing this show in a sort of leisurely fashion this morning, um, <laughs> as I drank my tea and thought about what I wanted to blab about today is water. So um, I haven't really done a lot of stuff around the waters of the U.S. Uh, proposed rule, and I, I should probably get into that more. I, um, some of you may remember we've had Paul Greenberg on a couple of times to talk about the impact of agricultural runoff into our um, lakes, uh, rivers, and streams, and ultimately the giant dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, Tom Philpot came on to talk about uh, the agricultural effluent in, the, in Lake Erie, which was having an impact on um, Toledo, Ohio last summer, where they didn't literally did not have drinking water for the entire city. And then, of course, Des Moines has been engaged in a furious battle with agricultural interests over trying to mitigate some of the um, downstream issues that are coming from their agricultural runoff. Um, Iowa being a huge, not only a corn state, but also a big pig state, a big pork state. Um, so you have both uh, fertilizer and you have uh, manure issues there. And, you know, nobody really wants that in the water, but somehow it's still happening. And so um, there has been this big uh, push by the EPA. This is even being reported in mainstream press, so you know it's important. And it's called the Waters of the United States Proposed Rule, and it is much disputed by agriculture. Um, it has now been turned into something called the Clean Water Rule, and the idea was to protect public drinking water and recreational areas from agricultural effluent. But here uh, is a quote from a recent speech by Gita McCarthy, who is the administrator of the EPA. And um, she is trying to clear up some of the misinformation that was uh uh, absorbed by the farming community, both large and small farmers. And I suspect, um, okay, I'm not going to suspect, I'm not going to point any fingers, but I do think that uh, large trade organizations often play a role in disseminating not completely accurate information to the rank and file who then become unnecessarily upset over proposed regulations. Anyway, what Gina said uh, recently uh, in front of a large group of farmers is that she um, that normal, quote, normal agricultural activities will continue with their current exemptions. Farmers and ranchers still won't need an Army Corps permit to go about their business. It's that simple and we'll keep it that way. So um, it looks like the EPA to a certain extent is caving in because what what sort of what the agricultural interests that were lobbying against any kind of clean water um, update was uh, that these new this new rule would affect uh, ditches by the road on the sides of their fields, you know, where they uh, have ir irrigation ditches or just plain old ditches to catch runoff when there's a flood or something like that. And that those would then be monitored by the EPA for, for effluent and then they would be fined. And so, uh, you know, the large scale industrial players um, 
for whom this could be a serious problem, uh, were very, very loud and vocal about shouting that down and no, you can't go onto people's property and test their water and so forth and so on. And with the result that essentially not a lot, I think, is going to change with the new proposed clean water rule, which is still, which is actually was debated in Congress uh, yesterday, the day before. You might note that the... Um, committee is chaired by Pat Roberts, who's a Republican senator from Kansas. And I note that a lot of the people on the agricultural committees of their various uh, in their various forms are indeed chaired by Republicans. And this this is just not a good thing. I think really we must pay more attention to who we're voting for, um, if only to maintain some level of integrity within the landscape. Um, and so just to give you an idea of who's debating this proposed rule, which the Senate will then uh, proceed to vote on, um, we start with um, the Attorney General of the state of Arkansas, Arkansas being a large agricultural state. Then the North Carolina Department of Environment and Natural Resources, which sounds really good, but let's remember that North Carolina has been unbelievably lax in enforcing any Clean Water Act rules, uh, North Carolina being a massive hog-producing state with um, the fame of the infamous manure lagoons that um, that the uh, sort of progressive food movement loves to point at as the worst offenders in uh, animal agriculture. Uh, so North Carolina, he may be the Department of Environmental and Natural Resources, but I'm, I, I'd like to do a little further investigation into where where his uh, real loyalties lie. Then we have the Kansas Department of Agriculture, another big uh, corn-producing state. And then we have the Washington State Department of Ecology. Now that might be okay, Josh Baldy. Then in the second panel, um, we're shown uh, the vice president of the Ingram Lumber Company in South Carolina. I can imagine that they don't really want to see any regulations changed on water usage. Uh, we have um, Mac McLennan, president of CEO of Minkota Power Cooperative in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Now, power, what does that mean? That means electricity. Um, electrical plants uh, generate lots of um, chemical effluent. That's not so great. We have Jeff Metz from the Metz Land and Cattle Company in um, Nebraska. And then we have uh, Kent Pepler from the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union in Denver. He might be a little more earthy, crunchy, but um, I wouldn't count on it. Anyway, the point is, is that I don't really see anyone from Food and Water Watch on this panel, on these panels. I don't see anyone from Natural Resources Defense Council. In other words, I don't see anybody on the side of the land and the ecology. What I do see is a lot of agricultural industry uh, insiders and... um, lobbyists uh, who are going to be making these decisions, which is why we need to be paying attention to this stuff. I know it's kind of a drag, unless you're like me, when all you really want to do is spend your entire day on the internet chasing down rabbit hole after rabbit hole of, you know, arcane information about water regulations. But honestly, it can really, truly be kind of fun. (laughs) You know, just drink some coffee and you'll have fun doing it too. Then another thing that I noticed today um, is uh, that the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, one of my very favorite trade orgs, has its three-day legislative session starting today. 
And this is an event where farmers and ranchers go to congressional offices and plead for their various causes. Now, that would include things like the waters of the United States, That would this new EPA proposed regulation about effluent in farming country. Um, it would have to do with antibiotics in livestock. It would have to do with animal welfare issues. Um, what else do you think it would have to do with... Uh, vertical integration of the industry as a whole. It would have to do with labor practices. So the National Cattlemen's Beef Association gets its guys to go into the, um, you know, into Congress and visit with various con- congressmen to basically say, probably, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, we're going to give you a big old campaign contribution if you see things our way. So um, I'm definitely going to go to this next year if I can, because uh, I think it'd be really interesting. And after all, these are the guys that are really pushing. It's not just the NCBA, but these trade organizations have a um, disproportionate impact on legislation. And whether we like it or not, legislation is really the key factor in changing the food system, unfortunately. I mean, much as I'd love to think that consumers are going to drive this, and to a large measure they have driven it. I mean, if you think about the changes in just the antibiotic use in livestock, uh, the fact that McDonald's is now saying, well, we're not going to you know, buy any chickens that are treated with antibiotics that are important to human medicine. Let's remember that there is that caveat there. It's not that they're just not going to use antibiotics. It's that the ones that are important to human medicine are the ones that they won't permit in their food chain, which is a great step in the right direction. No complaints, but just saying it's not the full Monty, if you know what I mean. Um, so anyway, to go back to the NCBA, I just want to finish up with that because it is kind of funny. Their opening remarks uh, for this three-day session are going to be presented by the president of the NCBA, Phil Ellis. And the next guest, um, the next co-presenter of the opening remarks, plenary session, whatever, is Dana Brooks, Director of Government Elanco Relations. And for those of you who aren't um, as plugged into livestock, Elanco is the veterinary medicine half of the Eli Lilly Pharmaceutical Company. So, I mean, you, <laughs> you got the guy who's the biggest drug pusher for the industry and who lobbies the most in Congress to make sure that nothing changes, at least I'm making that assumption. Um, about antibiotics in the food chain, and that's who's presenting to the National Cattlemen's Beef Association rank and file, which is more likely the you know the bigger players, but nevertheless. And then meanwhile, in the news, I don't know if I mentioned this already, um, but it's reported that our use of antibiotics in livestock will increase exponentially in the coming years. Uh, it's now 37 million pounds a year, or 38, and I think it's, going, it's projected to go up to 67 million uh, in the coming decade. Um, so... You know, much as I'd like to think things were getting better, and they are getting better, as I said earlier, it's the other countries that aren't really uh, towing the line on using that. And I just, you know, I just feel like we all need to take more of an interest in this as a global issue as opposed to just what's happening in the United States. But anyway, so um, I can see Jack yawning in there now. So let's take a short break because I've actually managed to jabber on here for 20 minutes. I can have a drink of water and then I'll tell you about what I'm doing for the next four weeks because I got some great shows coming up.
this lovely break song is called Mad as Dogs by the Hollows. This is Heritage Radio. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Networks. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Oh, hey, I was just daydreaming looking at these two chicks eating two of the most delicious looking pizzas outside of the window here at Heritage Radio Network. We're right in the back of Roberta's restaurant and I have there's happens to be a little two top right right outside the picture window and I'm watching these two babes devour these unbelievable pizzas. I'm starving. But anyway. I digress. So um, uh, if you're just joining me, um, which is probably not likely since this is normally a podcast, but just in case, I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. So um, to be honest with you, I'm kind of bored with myself and bored with my show. And uh, let me take this moment to invite you all to write in topics that you'd be interested in. I do have a Facebook page for the show, What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Um, Or you can just look for me, Katie Kiefer, and message me if you want. Um, Yeah, so I'm kind of bored with what I'm doing because frankly, like I've been covering most of the topics that I've talked to you about earlier in this show uh, for quite a long time, really, you know, six years. And um, and they're all really great topics, and I, I will continue to cover them because I do care about their progress, and I, I want to de- report progress as it's made and setbacks as they are made, and and uh, you know keep the all all the all the good stuff rolling. But in the meantime, I started getting interested. I get a great publication called Food Innovation. There's a few trade pubs that you can sign up for that are free that are really fun. Um, so in your spare time, you could be reading Food Navigator. You could be reading Food Innovations. Um, Those are two of my favorites. I think Marion Nessel turned me on to those. Anyway, um, so I was uh, down in D.C. this week, and I was um, doing something I really love to do, which is uh, wrangling a wrinkly. (laughs) I know that sounds weird, but I was basically taking care of a very old relative. And so I didn't have a lot of time to edit on my computer. I didn't have a lot of time because I was very busy wrangling my wrinkly. But um, I did have enough time to just kind of zip through food innovations and a few of the other trades. And I saw this really cool article about black helmet flies. And uh, so I wrote to the um, guy who runs this company, and uh, it's based in South Africa. And they're doing incredible groundbreaking work on using flies to both deal with uh, food waste and also to create feed for li- for poultry. So what happens is this. It's like a little closed loop thing. So they've been working, I guess, primarily in the poultry field, and I have not read everything I need to read about this, but there are TED Talks about it, and you can do research too. Um, they use these black helmet flies to basically eat shit, 
and then the flies reproduce, and then the maggots are fed to poultry. Now, that might be an ick factor for you, but I don't care. I think it sounds like a great replacement for corn, and it's a terrific protein source for the poultry, and it adds iron to their carcass, so that it actually increases the nutritional quality of um, poultry by feeding them these black flies, black fly maggots. And then it also deals with food waste issues, which we've covered on this show also, um, just saying, if you haven't noticed like how fricking on trend I am, people, I mean, come on, huh? Huh? Give me a little credit here. Uh, I've been covering that food waste thing for several years now. Anyway, uh, so the, the, so the flies eat food waste. They eat, you know, basically food and they eat, I guess, I don't know, maybe they eat chicken shit too. I don't know. But, you know, we throw 47% of our food produced in this country out, it goes into landfills, it creates greenhouse gases. It's a terrible waste, and in many ways, as well as being uh, an environmental hazard. So that, hopefully, this guy's experiments with black helmet flies um, is going to change all that. And you'll be hearing from him, I believe, March 30th. Um, so I hope you'll tune in for that. He sounds really interesting. The next person that I identified as having an incredibly cool really cool idea is a guy named Hod Lipson who's up at Cornell University. He works in their robotics department. And among the many projects that he has done, and I'm not a wonk about robotics at all, and I really don't particularly understand anything about them. He does 3D printing and he makes food. He does, he creates food with a 3D printer. I don't know how you do this. You kind of like put in the various ingredients into the printer and it comes out food? I don't know, but we're going to find out. He's going to tell us all about it. That's Hod Lipson from Cornell. He'll be on in a couple weeks. I think April 6th is his date. Um, Then, you know how I had that guy Pat Crowley on a few months ago? I think it was like a year ago now. Um, He has a company called Chapel Cricket Bars, C-H-A-P-U-L. And so in the course of discussing uh, cricket bars with him, uh, of course, one of the issues that he identified for me um, that is really the main issue about trying to source bugs for human consumption is that there's really nobody growing them. I mean, there's only the guys who grow them for tying flies or for feeding your snakes or whatever it is. But no, I mean, it takes a lot of crickets to make a cricket bar, right? I mean, you can imagine. And then also when it when you're just using them for fishing or for livestock or whatever, or for, you know, reptiles, there aren't any really strict regulations about how they're raised or what kind of chemical can go into their production or, you know, various things like that. So um, one of his biggest problems was sourcing the crickets. So come to find out, there's a bunch of new farms growing up. This is a whole new industry being developed. Um, and I'm hoping to have uh, one of the proprietors of Tiny Farms on, um, who has um, is not just growing crickets, but is also providing a template for other companies that want to grow insects for food consumption. And, um, and he is uh, going to be helping us understand how those farms are going to work and how um, in you know the coming decades um, those cricket and other bug products are going to be uh, considered as tasty as as tasty as cacao nibs right now. I mean, I'm ready for my chapel cricket bar. It'll be great right now. Like I said, watching these girls eat pizza is killing me. Um, so we're going to go, we're going to do another bug, eat, eating bug thing, which by the way, I was in my hometown a few months ago and they had a, um, they had like protein bars for sale at the coffee, at the coffee place. And I said to the young woman behind the, um, you know, you guys are a progressive, you talk about being progressive, you're all fair trade and everything. Why don't you have cricket bars? 
And she looked at me as if I had just, um, you know, sprouted uh, cauliflower out of my ears and and was like, ew, ew, I'm never going to eat bugs. And it was amazing the response with all of the young people around her, all of them working behind this coffee bar, the baristas. Um, they all were horrified at the idea of eating bugs. And yet, sadly for them, bugs are going to be a primary source of food for them in the coming decades. <laughs> You heard it here first. Yeah, they didn't. I didn't think I was cool for even saying that, by the way, which I, I was really quite hurt by that. Um, but anyway, I'm going to I'm going to bring it up again. And maybe a year later, they're like coming around to it, which will show you the power of media um, if they suddenly decide that eating chapel cricket bars is, is going to be a cool thing to do. So and then my last uh, in my innovation series, this will be four weeks. My last one, at least that I've booked right now, is with a company that I actually interviewed on episode 51 of the main course. So we're going way back to the very beginning. And that company is called Bion Technologies, and they are a waste management company, or what I like to refer to as fecal engineers. And they have developed um, increasingly complicated and interesting uh, technology for disposing of and cl- disposing of animal waste in large confinement area um, agricultural uh, enterprises, like a big, you know, feedlot, basically. And so, you know, those feedlots produce, obviously, uh, many hundreds of thousands of gallons of manure and pee uh, over the course of a day. And, um, you know, the problem has always been, what the hell do we do with it? Well, I personally don't think that that model of animal husbandry will never will ever disappear. And so um, the uh, onus, as I pointed out at the beginning of this show about water clarity and drinking water, the onus is on the industry to start cleaning up their uh, waste issues. And that means that they're going to need more buy on tech. So I, I wrote to those guys last night. I haven't heard back from them, but I'm definitely going to be um, soliciting an interview with uh, the buy on tech guys, hopefully the same ones that came on um, six years ago to talk about where their company has gone. They're all over the trades now. They've obviously been very successful. They've penetrated the major markets, uh, the major livestock producers. And it's a pretty exciting development that, um, you know, that something that started as really, these guys were literally a startup when I interviewed them six years ago. And now they're obviously a much more substantial company. Their headquarters have moved out to Colorado um, and they are working with some very big players in the industry. So that should be a lot of fun to hear uh, how they um, went from, you know, having just one or two sort of um, projects going that showed what they could do to now being pretty much of a mainstream company, um, working with some of the most difficult issues that anyone in agriculture faces, and that's how to maintain water quality um, for everybody downstream of your you know, particular place of operations. So that was, they, they're a cool outfit, and I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up with them. And then to sort of round out that theme, I wanted to mention that there is um, a fascinating, and actually I saw a couple of these stories listed on this site too, but that was after I'd already found them. But there is a site called futurefood2050.org. And um, when you listen to the people who produce food for our country and for the world, there's a lot of reliance on the on the trope that by 2050 our population will have increased by several billion and we simply will not without developing all these new technologies uh, and increasing our confined area feeding operations and you know basically consolidating our various industries that we'll never be able to feed 
uh, as many people as we need to feed. And what was interesting about the Future Food 2050 site was that um, one of the most fascinating papers on it was written by a guy named Parviz Kuhafkan, who is founder of the United States um, now 12-year-old um, committee called Globally Important Agricultural Heritage Systems. And what he does is is go around the world investigating indigenous people's um, centuries, sometimes centuries old uh, ways of growing food. For example, the Chinese had an incredibly efficient symbiotic relationship between rice farming and fish farming. And they would just basically grow fish and shellfish in rice paddies and the fish manure would fertilize the rice and, uh, you know, the various uh, components of the rice would evidently feed the fish and it all worked well. And then in comes sort of the NGOs with, uh, well, use this rice variety and don't do it that way, do this way. And as a result, some of those systems have been collapsing. And um, this man's uh, goal is to revive and expand those indigenous systems um, so that they, too, can be, um, uh, you know, corralled for producing more food uh, for the twenty for 2050 when we have all these extra people. And it was, it was a really interesting paper. I, t- I totally recommend it. And it's a great, um, it's a great uh, site to take a look at. So, wow, I managed to talk for 35 minutes. I think I'm done now. <laughs> I was hoping I could go for 40. And I really could because, you know, there's really no end of stuff that I'm interested in. It's not all about food. But... Um, I guess I'll keep it there and uh, or rather leave it there. So um, thanks for tuning in today um, for this kind of uh, blah, blah session. And um, hope you've had a good time. And, and please do tune in to my four, forthcoming series of four and possibly more uh, on food innovations, because that's where it's all going to happen, man. We're looking for more and more food innovations. And uh, there's a lot of really smart people out there making that happen. So thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery, as always, and to my excellent engineers, Dexter and Jack. And um, see you next week. So long for now. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 